Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Hi, and welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Amy Middleton. Amy Middleton here. Welcome to Women on the Line. Karen Pickering is a feminist presenter, writer, educator and founder of Cherche La Femme, Melbourne's monthly feminist talk show of popular culture, news and current affairs. Karen's latest achievement is the publication of a book through University of Queensland Press called Doing It, Women Tell the Truth About Great Sex. Doing It is a bold, explicit and unapologetically feminist offering, which collects 22 women writing memoir, essay, erotica and art, all about positive experiences of sex. According to the book's blurb, doing it represents the best arguments of the sex positivity movement, emphasising enthusiastic consent and rejecting slut-shaming and other pillars of rape culture. Today I speak to Karen Pickering, editor and the brains behind the publication, about her motivations, her experiences, and some of her favourite stories about women and sex. After the interview, contributor Amy Gray reads her piece from Doing It. Thanks for joining me. All right, I'm here with Karen Pickering, or rather I've got Karen Pickering on the phone. Thanks for being on Women on the Line, Karen. Thank you. Um, So you are the editor of a new book called Doing It, um, I've given a little intro, but what, what's the impetus behind the book from your perspective? Well, a few years ago, I had this idea to put together a collection of women writing about sex as a positive experience. So it just kind of came out of my love of building communities with women at the center of them or at the heart of them. And I wanted a space where we celebrated sex as an activity and a, 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 a kind of phenomenon or a process or a, or a part of your life that was really sometimes great and celebratory and not, um, not negative. And I felt like there was, there was spaces in the public sphere for talking about bad experiences, you know, not just in the sense of, of traumatic, but also just like hilariously bad and awful sex, um, I think gets a bit of a public airing because it's entertaining. But um, I thought usually when we're talking about women and sex, it's often sex being projected onto women and we hear a lot about what women should be like Mm. as sexual creatures or how women can be more sexually appealing to men. (laughs) And I just thought it seemed like what we were missing was a was a, a a project in which women just talked openly and unashamedly about loving sex, having sex, what they want from sex, and how much of a how how big a part of their lives it was. Yeah. Um, well, look, I couldn't agree more. Um, and I think the media has a big role to play in the way that 
um, women's sexuality particularly is perceived. Um, I'm wondering, there's a whole range of diverse voices in um, in this collection. How did you go about choosing contributors? Well, I truthfully, I, I, as I usually do, I just thought about who I wanted to talk to. Yeah, that's <laughs> a great way to choose it's people. It's the same with sourcing guests for Chantal Fam or when we were, you know, putting together Goth Mothers for Girls on Film Festival. It's just, you know, basically like, think about who your heroes are, who your favourite people are to read and give it a crack, ask them if they if they want to be involved. And I was so lucky because nearly everyone that I approached was really keen to, um, including you, Amy Middleton's <laughs> got a really great piece in this book. Um, and that was a, that was my first sure sign that there was an appetite for this and that mm. people wanted to read about other women's sex lives um, because all these women that I approached wanted to write about it. Mm. And, you know, there's also a big, I think, unhelpful kind of public sport in making fun of writing about sex, you know, that kind of bad sex writing award every year. Oh, and yeah. There's that kind of like, you know, and I'm sure being, you know, running Archer, um, you find the same thing. Like, yeah, there is bad writing about sex, sure. But I think that all of that kind of alarm and, and his, his, you know, hilarity and kind of cruel mocking that happens um, around writing about sex you know, deters people from doing it. Like, mm. I know great writers, great novelists and essayists who say, I'd love to write about sex, but, you know, it's too hard. Everyone will hate it. Everyone will hate what I write. Yeah, or mock it. Everyone will make fun of me. Mm. And um, and I just thought, that's such bullshit, you know, like that this huge part of women's lives and, um, you know, for, for some people, sex is is you know, revelatory or or energizing or mm. or hilarious or, you know, um really empowering and it really sucks that we don't hear women talking about that very much, um in in a in a way that is gonna be supported and listened to and people are gonna be really interested in it. Yeah. Yeah, so to give um listeners a little bit of a taste, um I think queerness is kind of a common theme. So that was, it's funny you mentioned that because with my publisher, we would, during the process of commissioning, we would have these regular conversations to kind of make sure that we were on track and, you know, um, we had, that we did have that diversity and we did have among the contributors, you know, different voices and a mixture of people who, whose writing is established and who everyone loves to read but also some new voices mm. that aren't so much sought out by mainstream, by the mainstream, you know, to hear from. And, um, yeah, it was really funny because at about halfway through the commissioning process, we realised that everyone who I had commissioned was a queer woman. <laughs> um, so we were kind of like, oh, we're going to have to find some straight yeah, yeah. to put in here as How well. Unfair. I know, like, <laughs> won't someone think of the heteros, you know? <laughs> So that was a really funny um, realisation to go, oh, actually, you know, um, just by virtue of of trying to find feminist writers who would talk about sex, it seemed like the the first ones maybe that popped into my head or who were the most keen were were women who have sex with other women. Um, 
and so that they're really strongly represented in the book. Yeah. Um, but we, you know, there's there's um there's an amazing array and like completely um complete juxtaposition throughout the book of you know women talking about um sex with a lot of different partners or sex with one partner over 30 years or you know sex with um with you know that doesn't involve physically being in the same room mm. um sex with yourself <laughs> going without sex or or making you know deciding to to take sex out of your life and that being a positive um step for some people and there's a few essays in the book as well that are basically like surveys of aspects of of pop culture and sexuality um particularly uh um, i love Sinead stubbins essay on teen girl sexuality Mm -hmm. uh which is brilliant and yeah there's there's a there's a mixture of people reminiscing or writing memoir about their own sex lives and also commenting on how sex operates in popular culture as a uh, a symbol of all of this all of these other things um and and how uncomfortable we can be in the west anyway with women as sexual creatures mm. um and that is something I, I talk about in the introduction you know why why we we put so much pressure on women to be sexual until they decide what that means, you know, yeah. and start to push back with their own versions of it, and then we kind of punish them. Um, so, yeah, the 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 books full of you know feminist writing, um, but there are within that cohort, there's incredible difference about mm. what what sex means and how the having of it affects our lives and our relationships. Totally. And you touched on um, people giving up sex or choosing not to have sex. And I'm conscious of the fact that, I mean, regular listeners to this show will know that it's one of my particular areas of interest and most media that I produce has something to do with sex. Um, But I often, like, encounter these people that feel that our Western society's obsession with sex, they feel the pressure of that and mm. trans- and that translates into a pressure to be sexual when not everybody really is. Mm, absolutely. And, you know, we kind of, we did, uh, there's not an essay that explicitly explores asexuality or um, in that, in that um, specific way, but it's definitely a thread throughout the book of, of people sometimes being able to figure out where sex should fit in their lives Mm. and it's not and it might not be in teenage years and it might not be you know um or it might it might be that they want to have sex more after their they go through menopause or Mm. you know these kinds of like rites of passage throughout our lives and the changing kind of situations that we're in and changing partnerships and so on um come up in the book a lot that people talk about long relationships that are that are quite kind of low like have have a shared kind of low libido um and then you know other connections that where people are surprised about what, what their kind of sexual 
proclivities are. And that kind of thing is, I think, really fascinating to me because sexuality is obviously as individual as each person. And and then when sex involves another another person and their kind of individual reality and all the everything that they bring with them, um, something completely new is made. Mm. It's not just like two people. Um, it's not the It's really funny because in in a way, it's not the same as like sitting down to dinner with somebody or or um, you know going for a run with somebody. It it is different, and I think that that um, sometimes that gets shorthanded, or sometimes mm-hmm. the reaction to that is a kind of prurience or a resistance of sex as or or a kind of judgment around sex as being bad or. Um, I don't know, like Emily Maguire talks really beautifully in the book about growing up in a very religious context and how she instinctively knew that all of the messages she she was getting about sex being dirty and wrong, you know, um, she knew that that wasn't right. (laughs) She she somehow, through all of that conditioning, all of that pressure, still kind of expressed a personal... uh, desire mm. and I think that's really a, I mean that's a, that's a really funny story the way she tells it but it's also really beautiful thinking about a teenage girl um able to kind of connect with herself in a way yeah um, it's quite amazing isn't it yeah and look you know even as I'm hearing my words I'm thinking um you know if you googled like teenage girl connecting with herself sexually you'd probably get some pretty <laughs> disturbing um not disturbing necessarily but you know you'd probably, possibly, get a, yeah. you'd probably get a lot of results that wouldn't necessarily be like great essays about you know yes. subjectivity and people um thinking through their relationship with sex and that's the thing is that you know um because of sex having so many different expressions and so many different um kind of ways of being that the thing I like about this book is that, and you know, being the editor means that you can just brag openly about how great it is <laughs> because you didn't write most of it. Um, that is a good position to be it's in. It's brilliant. So there's 22 <laughs> uh, essays and stories and articles um, from from incredibly different women and all of them have got this, you know, strong, sharp voice and this way of, and, and they all decided what they wanted to share about themselves and their sex lives. And it's it's just a beautiful space that's been created between the two covers because it, it is, it is, it's quite light. It's quite mm, it is. fun. It's got this kind of, you know, um, fizziness to it, which yeah. I really love. Um, it's and quite everyone, playful, hey? Yeah. Everyone kind of approached it with that kind of playful, attitude um but it 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 has a great kind of depth as well i think um and some of the pieces in like hannah blank's um essay about a sexual encounter that she had that didn't really fit with her idea of what her sexuality was um yeah that is you know breathtaking um there's parts of the book that are very serious and quite dark but i think the overall tone is one of like of one of of hanging out with other women over a few glasses of wine and mm. and loosening up. <laughs> I love that. That's yeah. my idea of heaven. 
As a, as a contributor, I would say that probably a big part of that was the way that you pitched it to us, which is in your, like, characteristically bubbly, light way, <laughs> which mm, probably yeah, set probably. the tone for it. Yeah, exactly, you know, and that's a, I mean, that's a, a, a great skill to have when, you, when you're running events, as I do, mm. and I feel like I approach the book very much like an event or a festival. You know, it's a kind of festival of, of, of women and sex, um, because when you're in these pages and you're sitting down with, with your glass of wine and your book, um, then hopefully you'll feel as though, like a festival, like an event, you're kind of transported somewhere else and, and that you're being brought into people's confidence um, in a way that's really warm and, and really trusting, yeah. but also, I think, I mean, and, and you know, generous in that way, but I think also very political um, yeah. and... And I think it's a, a pretty radical act for women to say, I have sex, I love it, I have sex with who I want, I have sex as much as I want. Um, and this is how I do it. And this is how I do it. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's really up to me um, how that how that goes down. Well, um, before we wrap up, do you want to just give listeners um, a clue as to where they can pick up their copies? Yeah, sure. Uh, I know that it's available to pre-order online through the Penguin website. So that's penguin.com.au if you Google doing it. Uh, the full title is Doing It, Women Tell the Truth About Great Sex and I'm the editor, Karen Pickering, um, and it's published through University of Queensland Press. So I know that it will be in all good bookstores, including readings uh, from the first week in September, and you can come along to the launch uh, at Chef FM. Beauty. Thanks, Karen Pickering, for joining us. No worries. Thanks for having me. All right. See ya. Now we're lucky enough to have Amy Gray reading her piece from Doing It. Amy Gray is a Melbourne-based writer interested in feminism, popular and digital culture, and parenting. I'll sign off after this reading, so thanks for joining me for Women on the Line. And thanks so much to our guests, Karen Pickering and Amy Gray, for this episode and more broadly for their fierce contributions to the world of feminism. It's roughly seven seconds between messages. We start small, asking about each other's lives, his record or his tour, my book or my article. In between messages, I scowl my bedroom. There's life to hide. You can do your eyeliner in seven seconds. You can do your mascara in the next seven. By the time you've shared five minutes of pleasantries, you're on the bed in rehearsed lingerie with a I lounge around like this all the time look that's ready for action, for sharing photos. The thought crosses my mind it's one-sided. Women often bear the expectation of holding the male gaze aloft, beds with no laundry on them, eyes dewy with the still dissipating fumes of makeup. Even when you're not at home, you're maintaining that gaze with artful composure, hiding the suitcase in your hotel room. Meanwhile, he's taking photos in public toilets and dressing rooms. He was a chance encounter, 50 metres from my door and on tour with his band. He was brutish and halting, with scraggly long hair and a beard, a wolf out of place. Women are afraid of me because I look like Viking, he told me. With his long, hulking frame, he stooped himself. I'm shy. He really wasn't, though. By the time he flew back home to Paris, I'd accompanied him through the hills of Italy, shitty bars in Berlin, and the wilds of Russia. All through our phones, a secret in our back pocket. 
We spun elaborate stories for each other, scenarios in airport cupboards, rotten New York alleys and flaking apartments in Paris. After our stories, we'd spin together softer tales of lying in bed, drinking coffee and smoking, or lazily squabbling over monster movies as though we had collapsed naked onto one another on the couch, waiting for pizza to arrive. We would trash talk about whose cat was prettier. Thousands of miles apart, and I could smell the beer on his breath and feel his beard tickling my neck. Endorphins can be tricked. On the days my inbox filled with a hundred emails containing stories and photos, my body unfurled into the deepest bliss. I knew his skin on a cellular level, despite not being able to touch him. We committed our ephemeral bodies to memory so comprehensively that they felt closer than they were. Our carefully shot photos in the beginning, that slow unveiling of our curves and angles, always hit our faces. But I knew his chest, every strand of its hair, and the way his pecs would shape. I knew his cock intimately. Every ripple went soft, every vein went hard. When the body can be fooled, so can the heart if it hears the same script often enough. He lied and said he missed me. I lied and said I would visit. We were in a relationship, but there was a bond, a shared delusion as we played our roles. In kink, roles are contained and exhaustively negotiated. In relationships, there is hopefully enough talking to find your own, slipping into your part as you wake. But when the person you desire is thousands of miles from you, out of step in different times and zones, those roles are more quietly guided from the stories you share and the stories you ignore basic programming to show you what will get a response and what won't. Play your role often enough, watching keenly for feedback, and you become an adept actor, taking notes from your performance to find meaning and direction to the point you forget you're even on a stage. An artificial set cobbled together from boredom, loneliness and need. What are you doing right now? I'm bored. I miss you. I'm lonely. You mean so much to me. It's easier talking to a screen than a real person. Together we became props to each other's performances, performed on separate stages to separate scripts to an audience of none. Yet reality intruded. The bright lights clunked on during an intermission between acts, ushers guiding us back to reality. Perhaps we needed details to explain the reasons the other would disappear, or that desire to see their whole selves rather than the disconnected parts in all those secret photos. That need to see the breasts that swelled and the pleading eyes that followed the tug of a cock, an expanded intimacy to amplify the performance, and required trust, and we still hadn't even agreed to share our surnames with each other. We agreed that we would shed two details about ourselves and let the other find us. I had found him weeks before, but I I kept quiet about that fact. He had a blue tick on Twitter and a Wikipedia entry. Hundreds and thousands of fans would hit like on his public photos. We both had wide trails for the other to find. Despite our words of communion and rituals of confirmation, we never acknowledged each other publicly. There were no friend requests, no online validation. Instead, he would occasionally post photos of himself in Australia, wishing he were back here, and I started tweeting about French politics. We existed as a continually orbiting but distant connection, together in private, apart in public and in actuality. In real time, itself a not 
to our transients. I sat through the terrorist attacks and recording label fights with him. He sat through my hospital appointments, muggings and the deaths of friends. Invisibly present, never claiming this as a relationship and never fully existing or trusting. But the choice to share our real identities made us trust each other more. We switched from a messaging app to an email, our actual private email addresses. The conversation stayed the same, but the photos we shared became more intense. Not from how we positioned ourselves, but because we included our faces, presenting our whole selves, eyes betraying intimacy more than anything else can, from wide-eyed bafflement to fire to something that skimmed close to affection. It was never discussed. Those words were reserved for the stories we would share with each other. But we had moved on to a new intimacy, not one where you curl into one another at 3am and confess your fragilities, hoping for acceptance, but one where you willingly display your desire, trusting it would never be thrown out into the world. Trust, however, is a tension that hit us with surprising equality. When a man's naked photos are publicly released, there is rarely a ripple. His pursuit of desire is judged as natural, an act accepted with affection and humour, those boys being boys. He knew, though, that his photos would be judged the same as a woman's. When a woman's naked photos are publicly released, her desire is seen as an indictment, a crime to have shown her needs in a society expecting her to fulfil everyone's but her own. Men can show desire. Society caters to their needs as natural events. But a woman can only show herself responding to male desire, her desires pointedly ignored. We want women to be sexually pleasing, not sexual. To admit sexuality is to admit an independent hunger, a profound want. Such an admission renders us whole complex figures, more than slabs of flesh available for male moulding and profit. His celebrity, however, brought him down from the normal male invulnerability and closer to my status as woman. A two-dimensional image, constructed with no meaning or motivation other than to please the viewer. Perhaps his relative fame promised mutually assured destruction, a bomb neither of us wanted to detonate. Even so, society will accept his body in all that it does, more than it ever will mine, though a man can bear his cock out in public and have a cheeky slash without censure. A woman can barely expose a breast to feed that same man's child. Man is allowed function, while woman is reduced to form. If our photos ever leaked, people would call it revenge porn. While others decry the term as a euphemism that hides the often-gendered crime, it feels like the perfect descriptor to me, because it shows how we cast women as objects for male pleasure and penalty. Having sexted for over a decade, I now insist on men sexting back photos of themselves. It is as much an insurance as it is an insistence they conform to my gaze. Let them run to the mirror to check their face, to their bedroom to hide their mess. Let them reduce themselves to trusting body parts that are seeking approval for my desire and acceptance. I am not some mute meal for noiseless consumption. I am not a compliant program seeking to run through all variables until it reaches its successful conclusion of a man's fingers glistening with his cum. I may live in a world that demands I protect men's secrets while presenting my own as objects for sale or trade, but that doesn't mean I'm above upending a few tables to interrupt the market. As the years and men have rolled on, I have lost the fear of someone releasing naked photos of me. Perhaps he could share the photos and stories that lie sleeping in his inbox, those dormant, forgotten pleasures. 
if he ever feels the need for revenge, but how could someone claim vengeance on me by releasing my photos? I exist and feel desire. These are universal statements that can be applied to everyone, and sometimes there's photographic evidence of both. So why would I feel ashamed to have my desire outed? The presumption of shame would suggest I hold my desire as less natural than a man's, that my desired body should be hidden from view unless a man can work out how to make a buck from it. Shame would blindfold me from the most exquisite irony afflicting all sexting shamers and revenge-pawned cockroaches. They continually search for photos of naked women they desire, only to call them ugly. Nothing about this is new. There is no shock in displaying what the world says I must deny and yet secretly hopes will be stolen from me. When women are on a public platform, the unspoken negotiation is that they must silence their voice and present their bodies for inspection. There are intersections within this. Women are examined based on their race, size and ability, but the net result is that we're inspected and judged as two-dimensional, not afforded the same share of acceptance given to men, but expected to carry all of the penalty for their power and desire. When our proudly vulnerable photos of our naked bodies are seen, it's demanded we shrink from that platform rather than what we should do double down and demand the world accept we are as complex and forgivable as men. So here I am. That's not the first topless photo you've seen. It won't be the last. Others will be equally assured, legs firming against any shove off that platform. We construct society and desire, but the only thing that is real is my refusal. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a group of women at 3CR Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is Sideshow at Free University by La Tigra. Women on the Line can be downloaded from our website, womenontheline.org.au or download the podcast at 3cr.org.au slash podcast. I'm Amy Middleton. Tune in next time for another edition of Women on the Line. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.